If you've not already done so, please turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 5. The title of today's sermon is Christ and Him Crucified. Hear the word of the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and let's once again turn our attention toward him and ask his help. Father, we are thankful that you've given us this opportunity to gather again today. And with humble, dependent hearts, we ask you to help us. Lord, many of us can read through this sermon text and easily get excited about the content of Christ and Him crucified. Yet, in reality, we we struggle living in that moment by moment throughout the day. God, we do pray that You would help us to see Him. Help us to be made aware of the ways that we are with him dying to sin and in him living a life that is pleasing to you. God, we pray that you would use your word today coupled with the work of your spirit to breathe spiritual life into dead souls. God, we pray that you would arrest our hearts, that you would captivate us again. Lord, help us to see Help us to see. Help us not to be the kind of people in the kind of church that are happy to say we are about Jesus, yet live practically in denial of that reality. Be gracious to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, imagine with me for a moment that you get to the doctor for a routine physical. And as the doctor goes through the standard checks, you describe to him a few additional issues that you're having and after describing these issues he encourages you like good doctors would do toward a healthier lifestyle that could possibly relieve some of these problems that nag you or in the very least help you prevent or help prevent some of the issues that could be problems for you in the future then come the x-ray results and there's something that he discovers inside you Though you are aware of something like this being able to happen, you're understandably jolted. Everything in life for a few minutes is just pushed on pause. For these few minutes, you're not really concerned with the other nagging issues that you may have, a bulky knee or a sore elbow or difficulty sleeping. It's not that these things are unimportant. You simply, they, they simply don't hold the same weight as what the doctor has revealed that's going on internally. Well, why would I begin with a metaphor like this? I do so because I believe each of us 
would, if put in this situation, begin asking several diagnostic questions. None of us would leave that room and just say, okay, we appreciate your help, appreciate you making us aware that something's going on, but we're not concerned about what actually is happening inside. Now, we'd start peppering the doctor with lots of questions. What's going on inside of me? How concerned should I be? What is treatment going to look like? Essentially, we're looking at this doctor. We're asking him, what can you do to help me? I believe this word picture can help give us a visual for what Paul is doing in the ministry with the Corinthian church. I've got two points today from these five verses in 1 Corinthians. The first is this, the posture in ministry. And the second would be the aim in ministry. So the posture in ministry and the aim in ministry. There are three phrases I want to draw to our attention. Perhaps we can call these identifying marks when considering the posture of ministry. These phrases come straight from the text. The first one is this. Paul saying to the church, I came to you. The second one is, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And the third phrase is found there in verse 2. For I was determined, or for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Another area that I want to draw to our attention before we look at the explanation for these phrases is the contrast for where verse 1 begins and where verse 5 concludes. Verse 1 begins with this, when I came to you. Verse 5 ends with this, so that your faith would rest, not in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul's come to them. He's with them. And it's not so they can put their hope and their trust and their rest in his wisdom, but so that they are resting on the power of God. Well, why draw this out? Paul's doing something very, very, very important here. He's doing something extremely important among this young church. He is making clear that there is a central figure in the Corinthian church, and his name is not Paul. He's also making clear there's a central person in his message, and it's not Paul. Further, there's a central figure in the testimony of God, and that's right, you guessed it once again, it's not Paul. Central to the Corinthian church, the message proclaimed, and the testimony of God is Jesus Christ. Let this sink in. Paul's gifts would obviously have an appeal to the Greeks who prided themselves in wisdom. Though he didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom or persuasive words of wisdom, Paul was undoubtedly gifted, as noted in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, when he says that according to the righteousness comes from the law, he was found blameless. Let's not miss this. This is a guy... Speaking of Paul, who had it all. He had the impressive story. He had the following. He possessed the gifts. He planted this church. Each of these are weapons. If used by prideful men, can become abusive to the church for whom Christ has shed his blood for. But we don't find this with Paul, do we? 
we find these phrases. I came to you. I was with you in fear, trembling. For I determined to know nothing among you. What we see and find in Paul, and as he's coming to this church, is he's wanting this church to rest in the power of God. This is what a humble leader does. That he wants their faith to rest in the power of God fuels his determination to know Christ and him crucified among them. Like the opening introduction, it takes all the possibilities. We think about going to the doctor and all of these things that are going on within us. We don't really care about the other things. We want to know what's most important. We want to zero in on the essentials. And that's what Paul's doing here. So I don't, again, I don't want us to miss this phrase, with you, I was with you, and with you, with fear, and with trembling. So let's go to a little bit of the background context for what is uh, speaking into this phrase. I was with you in much fear and in trembling. We could go all the way back to Acts chapter 16 when the church at Philippi was planted. Paul was there. He came around uh, Lydia, who was selling the linen. She was converted. Not soon thereafter, trouble began to commence when the ministry of the gospel began to cut into the prophets there in the marketplace. Paul and Silas were then beaten publicly. They were put in prison. And chapter 16, verse 24 records, they threw them into the inner prison and they shackled, their, shackled and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay? That's an important point. They were in the inner prison shackled. At midnight, do you remember what Paul and Silas were doing? Singing hymns, or they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God at midnight while in the inner prison after being beaten publicly as their feet were in these stocks. A violent earthquake shakes the prison. All the doors are opened. They're Stocks, their, their chains are loosened. You may recall what is the jailer who is presiding over them. What does he seek to do? He knows that once word finds out that all these prisoners have gone free, he's going to lose his life. He takes his sword out. He begins, to take off his, he begins to take his own life. And Paul stops him. He says, we're right here. We're not going anywhere. Paul then urges him to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This jailer believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, following Philippi, he went to Thessalonica. They left Philippi, came to Thessalonica, and according to Paul's custom, as soon as he gets to Thessalonica, what does he do? Finds himself a synagogue, begins to preach about Jesus Christ. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded. You see the difference there of being, uh, when Paul says, I didn't come to you with persuasive words. He's saying, my words in and of themselves cannot persuade you, which is not the same thing to appeal to somebody that they would give up their life and come to Christ. So some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city 
in an uproar. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So, Paul, after starting this church in Thessalonica in three to four weeks, he leaves and goes to Berea. As he's in Berea, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica, the city he had just left, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So he lives, leaves Berea, then goes on to Athens. While he's in Athens, it's recorded there that many sneer at his message. Well, after he leaves Athens, Acts chapter 18 records the account where he comes to Corinth, where he'll spend a year and a half. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. He was reasoning in the Sabbath every, or I'm sorry, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, for I am clean. For now I will go to the Gentiles. While he is here in Corinth, okay, this is before the writing of this letter, the Lord says to Paul in chapter 18, verse 9, in the night by vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Listen to this. For I am with you. Where have we heard that phrase before? For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. So Paul settles there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So this is the context which leads to Paul saying to them, I'm with you. I'm with you with much fear and much trembling. I see what they are doing to Christians. I see the efforts that they're making to try to exterminate Christ and his word. If Paul were the kind of attention-grabbing person, he could have used his circumstances as a platform to promote himself. He could have used them to promote his gifts. He could have used all of these things to promote his accomplishments. He could be saying things like, look what I did. Look what happened in Philippi. Isn't that an impressive thing? God used me to plant a church in Thessalonica in three to four weeks. These could have been the boastful things that came out of Paul's mouth. Then they got mad at me and drove me to Berea, but when they learned I was, what I did in Thessalonica, they drove me out of there, and now I'm here. So you, I, picking up on what it is I'm trying to make us aware of, there is a way to tell the story of the things that were going on in his life, but to tell it in, in a way where you are made and put as front and center. Paul is not putting himself front and center. He was not interested in drawing attention to either his accomplishments, nor was he interested in drawing people's attention to the controversy surrounding him. For Paul and for us, pride lurks around every corner. He could have prided himself in his accomplishments. He could have taken pride in the controversy that surrounded him. But today's text tells us 
We're, we're listening. We're dealing with a humble man. He was with them, fear, trembling. And his interest was in knowing Christ in them. That's what he was about. If we need further help in understanding that this was the heart behind and underneath Paul's posture in ministry, 2 Corinthians 11 helps us. When he says, if I have, if I have to boast... I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So let's bring this even to present day Grace Church. And I just want to beg you, I want to implore you one way that you can pray for your pastors. Ask God to help us to never lose our sense of weakness. Ask God to help us to never lose our sense of fear and trembling. Ask God to protect his church by making us leaders keenly aware of every opportunity given to us to use this platform or this calling to put ourselves, our accomplishments, and even our church as front and center. I'm so thankful that early on in ministry, God convicted me, clearly convicted me about dependence upon him regardless of the platform that, that was provided. As best as I can recall, God has answered this prayer by making me aware of my weakness and dependence upon him whether I'm preaching, uh, whether it's a class that I'm teaching, or if it's the opportunity given for public prayer. Public prayer. Very early on, God impressed on my heart to be aware of my weakness, to be aware of the opportunity for pride, and to be humble before his people. Saturdays before preaching are always arduous for me. They're, without, they're, they're, just, they're just miserable. As I think about the weight of Sunday. With, and they're always miserable. Even, even this morning when I came in uh, from setup, uh, April said, are you looking forward to preaching 1 Corinthians 2 today? I said, nope, not yet. Wasn't ready. The, the, the weight and the, and, the, and the dependence. And I just even appreciate even things uh, like this um, as, I, as I was finishing up the preparation. And I was telling April, I was like, I, I think I have a few more notes than what I normally do today. And I'm not going to tell you how much more. That way it won't discourage you this early in. Well, Jaden just, I mean, she just walks by and she said, well, you know, that, that, that's easy. Just cut out your bad stuff. And so maybe that'll, uh, don't cut out the good stuff, the text, but cut out your bad stuff. But there's a great danger in gospel ministry. The great danger in gospel ministry is because it can be, this can be a platform for pride. It could be easy for someone like me to watch the celebrity pastor thing play out among the nation. People who are well known for their ministry, their, 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 their capability. It'd be easy for a guy like me who has zero celebrity following. I'm not even, I'm not even a celebrity in my own home. So it'd be easy for me to look at a situation like that and just say, I'm, I'm excused from that. That's not something that can touch me because... Nobody's asking me to write anything. Nobody's asking me to come and preach and do all of these things. But in the reality, is that sin, 
that, that, that egregious sin is every bit as much in my heart. All the same pride resides in my heart. Gospel ministry can be dangerous because of the access given to God's people in order to assert our own authority that is contrary to what's provided in Scripture. This is spiritual leadership abuse. It provides an opportunity for authority-grabbing people to use it to not be humble leaders, but to be tyrants of Christ's people. Those are some of the negative reasons for why gospel ministry can be dangerous. But being with them in fear and trembling also acknowledges that well-intentioned pastoring is not good enough. What do I mean by that? Well-intentioned pastoring is not good enough. My best intentions can still do harm and wound the sheep. This is why a church zeroed in on the person and work of Christ sets themselves up for, fruit, for fruitful ministry when they zero in on the person and work of Christ. Humble spirit-wrought dependence upon Christ helps all of us understand and thrive in our place of ministry under our Father's care through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me say this again. Humble, spirit-wrought dependence upon Christ helps all of us understand and thrive in our place of ministry under our Father's care through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend, on whose doorsteps you read, welcome, and not beware of the dog. So Grace Church, I, I believe I can speak on behalf of your pastors and say we're with you. We're with you. With the Lord's help and his grace, we're with you. And we're with you in fear and in much trembling. And now since we are together, since the Lord has brought us together in this church, in this fellowship, since we are with one another, what should our time on earth consist of? Which brings us to the second point, the aim of ministry. So Paul's posture, that humble leadership, not taking things God's done in his life and using those as a way to promote himself, what about the aim of ministry, the purpose of it? We could easily describe that as this, having one determination, being determined by one object. So let's exa examine verse 2 a bit more closely or carefully. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This word determined, it means to be summoned to a trial that one's cause, that a person's cause may be examined so that judgment could be passed upon it. I determined to know, to inspect, to examine, to look at, to behold, to experience, or one use of the word, to have an interview with. 
I determined to know. Drawing out the etymology of the word determined, we learn that it has a forensic nature and meaning. So if Paul is walking by members of the church in Corinth, and he asks them what I've, I've asked a ton of times before, and it's a question of, well, how you doing? Paul, according to our understanding of the two words that we just defined, will not be satisfied, nor will he be content if you just say, I'm good, I'm all right, and just kept walking along. That would beg, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's wait. What, what do you mean by good? What's your, what, what's your standard for good? What, what's your understanding for how your soul is doing before the Lord? He would understand based on the word determined and know, I got some work to do. A close examination needs to happen. Why? Because there must be. There must be substantial fruit in our life that displays and demonstrates that our life really is good with the Lord. One way that we could honor the Lord and do this church good and even serve our own spiritual well-being is not just to say, I'm good, in order to dismiss somebody from doing further examination of the things that are going on in your life. This is how determined Paul is to knowing Christ among the Corinthians. And I do want to stop. I think most of you probably understand it. But if, but if, but if any of you are here thinking, oh, he's going to, here comes the, Paul wants to just judge them. Paul is not placing himself as a final arbitrary judge over them. God alone is the righteous judge. This is a deliberate act of the will. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ. Putting these words together, we can understand this was a skill set that Paul was concerned with using. The knowledge of Christ and to what degree his resurrection was bearing fruit among the Corinthians. That's what he was going after. What confidence would we have in the ability of a repair person who shows up your home if you've got a major leak, they've got no skill set, they've got no tools, they're not working for anybody. What confidence would we have if that person shows up at your house and says, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to repair the things that's broken? Are you kidding me? Like, no tools? No skill set? You ever done this before in your life? We wouldn't put any confidence in a person like this. Knowing Christ and Him crucified is the skill set for which Paul is primarily concerned with. Let that sink in. Where do we need to be skilled as a follower of Jesus Christ? Knowing Christ. What's the surgical diagnostic procedure that we're going after? Him crucified in you. This is why it shouldn't feel intrusive at all when a pastor or a church member inquires of your spiritual well-being. It's not intrusive. They're not 
muddying up in your, meddling up in your business, not sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. It's not intrusive, it's love. It's love. Consider what we read earlier in Acts chapter 18. The Lord was with Paul. Paul is saying that he is with the Corinthians. So when a genuine brother or sister in Christ inquires of how we are doing with Christ, consider this a means of grace from God for the spiritual well-being of your soul and the congregational purity of the church. If we stiff arm this kind of care, it's to also say that we have little regard for the purity and unity of this church. Individual care is corporate care. Corporate care is individual care. And no member of the body of Christ can unsubscribe from that. Let us be determined. Let us all be determined to grow in this skill set. Get in each other's life to see the evidence, the forensic evidence of Christ and him crucified. Not in the same way. Not in the same way. I know we've all seen those little CSI shows and stuff like that. Not in the same way that you're trying to find out and solve a crime. But get in one another's life. See this forensic evidence of Christ and him crucified as loving help. As loving help so that you are enjoying in Christ everything that he has given to us through his death and his life. Paul is aiming after that. Your faith to rest in the power of God so that you can enjoy all the benefits of Christ. In Isaac Ambrose's little bitty 694-page book on looking unto Jesus, the very first chapter, the first paragraph, all we say is but unsavory if it is not seasoned with this salt. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right, who is this Christ? What is his work? Admittedly, this is, this is the most challenging, not, this most challenging aspect of the sermon. It's like, how, how do you answer that question? I mean, it's, there's so many different ways. So, I just, I, I pray that this will help stir you and provoke you to worship and will be used to join all the other things that God's revealed to you about his son Christ through his word. We can answer who is Christ and what is his work through what 1 Corinthians says. It's his gospel of grace that's given to us. Chapter 1, verse 4, grace was given to you by God in Christ. Who is this Christ in his work? It's the cross. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those, who are, who are, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul later on says in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, this was a stumbling block. Why? Because they did not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. To Gentiles, it was foolishness because they put their faith and their trust and their hope in their own wisdom. It's the glory of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 24, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Paul is holding forth the expository exaltation in Christ through pro proclaiming him. 
the sermon text that we consider today. I came to you proclaiming God, the testimony of God. My words were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God. Verse 7, we speak God's wisdom. Verse 13, we speak what the Spirit teaches. The Christ-centeredness of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. This determination to know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. The persevering love of Christ from chapter 1, verse 8. Christ will confirm you to the end. God's sovereignty and glory in the work of Christ as it relates to salvation. What we considered last week. God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the base to shame the world, so that no one may boast before the Lord. It's by God's doing that you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that he who boasts will boast only in the Lord. Who is this Christ and what is his work? Well, he sends the Spirit, who chapter 2 says, searches and knows all things, even the depths of God. We receive not the Spirit of the world, we receive the Spirit of God. We see God's faithfulness through Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that your dependence would be on Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 holds out for us. So that your faith would rest in the power of God. So that's a little bit of sampling of how the book of Corinthians answers the question, who is this Christ and what is his work? What's the sampling of the rest of the Bible? Christ is God. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Root of Jesse. He's the Wonderful Counselor. He's the Mighty God. He's the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the Ruler of Israel whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's the Propitiation for your sins, the Hope for the Nations, the Savior of the world. He's the Hope for you. He's the Eternal King of Kings. He was a Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He's the Cornerstone for the Church. He's mankind's treasure. He's one whom the Father takes pleasure in. He is the one who is formed in the Christian. He's the radiance of God's glory. He has the name which is above every name. He's the light of the knowledge of God. He's the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent. He's the redeemer of his people. He's the bread of life, living water, the great I am, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the lover of his sheep, the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. He's the resurrection of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, the humble king, the true servant, the wisdom and power of God, the very righteousness for his children. He's the one who blesses us with spiritual blessing in himself. He's the one whom the four living creatures are saying right now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. He is the one whom the 24 elders are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. He is the only one who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals. He's the one who the 24 elders are saying in Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take this book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. He's the one who many angels and living creatures and elders say and with a loud voice, worthy is the Lord, or excuse me, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's just... A little bit of how the Bible would answer the question, who is this Christ? What is he like? How is it work? 
Or how is he at work? I mean, recently in our Leviticus series, summarizing the first, chapter, first seven chapters, the sacrificial system that was set up, if you recall, the priests and the Israelites, they needed a representative who was the priest. They needed a substitute, which they would select animals. They needed satisfaction. They needed redemption. What do we need? We need a representative as well. And that representative is Jesus Christ. We also need a substitute. And only Jesus can be that substitute. We too need satisfaction from God's wrath. And Jesus Christ is the one who absorbs God's wrath on our behalf. We too need redemption. And that redemption cannot be found in anything that we can do, anything we can say, can only be found through the deliverance of Jesus Christ. So as you can see, I think just this sampling is enough to sufficiently occupy our souls and thoughts for eternity. Know Christ and Him crucified. Who is He? What, is, what does He do? Who He is describes His person. His distinct role as the second person of the Trinity. Him crucified is an encapsulating look at His work. What did God send Jesus on this earth to do? We cannot separate the person of Christ from his work. Nor can we un accurately understand what he has done and what he is doing from who he is. Imagine you coming to me and, and, and asking me this question. Nathan, what is marriage life like? And my response is, man, I love it. Okay, well then you follow up with, well, tell me what your wife's like. I don't know. What are some things that she desires? I'm not real sure. What are her interests? Um, I don't really know that either. In what ways are you cultivating love for her? I didn't really give much thought to that. You tell me, that's not a Christian marriage. I'm not sure what's going on in that home. But that's not a Christian marriage. You cannot separate what he has done from who he is. Don't you want to get to know him? Don't you want to grow in love for him? What is he like? What does he enjoy? What's going to bring him honor? What will help me to grow in likeness to him? This is one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for this resource that we're going through in small groups, how people change. The authors are introducing us to the person of Christ and not some formulaic approach to a better stress-free life. Jesus has never been, Jesus has never been, nor will he ever be, a means to some other end that we have concocted in our own imagination. If he is, then what we have is a functional idol. Paul is not dismissing the clear reality that Corinth is riddled with issues. We're going to get to those later on. He's beginning with the foundation, though, of Jesus Christ. He's going at the root. He's going where they are drifting from Christ. This is the primary reason why they're having divisions, why they're riddled with sexual immorality, why they don't understand what to do with food sacrificed to idols, why they are partaking of the Lord's Supper in a sinful manner, why they are abusing the gifts, why they are confused about the gifts, why they don't understand their, their uh, function as a member of Christ's body. They had drifted. Yes. Let me illustrate it. If you've been near the river recently, you've seen... You've, you've just seen how much it's been rising. 
But even when it's not as high as it is, you can see how quickly, how quickly the undercurrents. And sometimes it's hard to see with the eye, so I just encourage the kids, I said, just find something out there, driftwood. Now watch how fast it floats down the river. Not all drifting from Christ looks quite like that. Sometimes we're unaware of it. Sometimes it, it could be like sitting in a lake, in an inner tube, closing our eyes, keeping them closed for 15, 20 minutes, opening them up and look to see, man, I had no idea how far from the shore I've drifted. They had drifted. Nobody sets out to drift from the Lord. But that we don't set out to do that does not make us immune to it. That's why determining to know Christ and what you're doing with him, what he's doing in you, is a non-negotiable manner of care for the ministry of this church. I don't know if this is a prophetic word or not, but I'm going to run this risk. If you don't have someone in your life that is determined to know you and how you're doing with and in Christ, you're drifting. And you may not even know it. Again, an easy handle for Christ and Him crucified is that the cross represents death and life. It represents death and life. If you don't have someone in your life that is determined at examining how you are crucifying sin and seeking to enjoy life in Christ, you are drifting. We're going to pause for just a brief moment and let that statement settle on you. And I just would encourage, ask the Lord. He searches the heart examines us, ask him, ask him, in what ways am I drifting? In what areas am I tempted to drift? Paul was determined to become skillful at knowing how the Corinthians were growing in their understanding of Christ. He was determined to know how's the death of Christ bearing fruit, life-giving fruit in their life. And so we consider this phrase, demonstration of the spirit and of power. Man cannot conjure up the spirit of God. Man cannot conjure up the spirit of God. Several years ago, I was speaking at a college retreat. And toward the end of one of the uh, speaking sessions, one of the leaders of the group, and I think maybe a few of the leaders came over, and uh, they were, they were uh, signaling for me to come over as the, the, the worship band was singing. And uh, one of them asked me the question, so what do you think the Spirit's doing? I don't know. What do you think we ought to do next? Uh, I'm not real sure. 
And the implication and thought behind that is what can we do to manufacture the Spirit in order for Him to start doing some things that it seems like He's not quite capable of doing unless we sing another song, unless we sing another verse. The Spirit of God does not need us. In fact, this is what we're told. Don't grieve Him. Don't grieve the Spirit. So the Spirit of God cannot be conjured up. So the demonstration of the Spirit of God is on display when He convicts us of the very things that can only be provided in Christ. Did you catch that? The demonstration of the Spirit of God and power is on display when He convicts us of the very things that only Christ can provide for us. You need wisdom? This is only found in Christ. You need righteousness? It's only acceptable through the righteousness in Jesus Christ. You need sanctification? This is reserved for those who are in Christ and only happens in fellowship with the triune God. Do you need redemption? You can only be delivered from your sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The power of God is that, the, that Christ is our righteousness, that Christ is our sanctification, that he is our redemption. The demonstration of the Spirit is shown when in John chapter 16, when Jesus is telling his disciples it's to their advantage that he goes away because he is going to leave with them or send them the Holy Spirit, that when he comes, this is what the Spirit of God's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. He will guide you in all truth. He, speaking about the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I've had zero hope in anything that I've put down here on this tablet. I'm, I'm praying it's faithful. But I've zero hope. Zero hope in anything that I've put down on this tablet outside of citing God's word. The hope is the work of the Spirit through the preaching of God's gospel would help you put your rest, you put your faith, and that you would rest it in the power of God. So as we wrap things up, how can you discern that your faith is resting in the power of God and not the wisdom of men? Test your faith against the revealed will, will of God. Is there anything about what I believe that is in clear conflict with the revealed will of God? The Bible has never been wrong about these matters. Nor is the Bible silent on things that we regard as a faith and in practice. How do you know that someone's faith is resting in the power of God? Well, they love Christ. Not primarily the benefits. They love the person of Christ. How can you be helped in assuring that your faith is resting in the power of God and not in the wisdom of man? Surround yourself with people 
who were with you in their own weakness, with the Holy Spirit wrought determination to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Knowing Christ is not the same thing as knowing about Christ. Psalm chapter 103, verse 7, it was said, Moses knew the ways of God. Israel knew his works. You see the distinction? Moses knew the ways of God. Israel witnessed the activity of God. Wouldn't it be a shame? In so many ways to witness the hand of God, yet not know the Christ who's done these very works. One of the aspects of a fallen world that breaks my heart is the likelihood that some among us are going to perish and suffer the eternal wrath of God. Not because you did not hear that there was a Christ, but that you didn't know him. Not because you were unaware that there was a way to God, but you refused to trust Christ as the only means to get to God. Not that you didn't believe there was a heaven and hell, but that you refused to acknowledge or repent from your self-righteousness. You've somehow bought into the notion that you were good enough. So to the Christian, let me be clear. The moment Christ becomes anything but preeminent in your heart, let me personalize that. The moment Christ becomes anything but preeminent in our heart is the very moment we begin the plight toward a backslidden state. Where are you with Christ? In what ways are you dying to sin? In what ways are you enjoying life lived in obedience to him? To the lost among us? What idol is keeping you from him? What's so precious to you that you refuse to turn away from it and run to him? Why is that thing so precious to you to the Christian when's the last time that we were distracted with Christ rather than from him what freedoms have we pushed or pushed their way into our life and become more captivating than an eternal savior what are some areas the spirit of God is revealing to you right now where you need to let in a determined brother or sister to know you to know how you're struggling, to know how you're wrestling with it so that they too can see how you're doing with Christ, so they can see how you're dying to sin and enjoying life in him. Let's allow Ambrose one time, one more, one more time to help us, and then I'll pray. Let us know Jesus carrying on the great work of our salvation. We must not only study to know these things, we must meditate on them until they come down from our heads to our hearts. Meditation is the poise that sets all the wills within going. It were too small purpose to bid us desire, hope, believe, love, joy. If first we did not meditate. In meditation it is that the understanding works. That the will is inclined to follow. That devotion is refreshed. That faith is increased that hope is established, that love is kindled, and therefore to the soul gives life and light and motion to the Lord's actings in all our goings forth. This is our only hope in life and death.
Christ and him crucified.